We need to do a better job of teaching our young people about the history of slavery. And today we're going to talk about one specific part of that history, which is slave rebellions. Too often we are told that slavery was about docile slaves and oppressive masters, and that's the end of the story. The truth is, enslaved people have always been fighting for their rights. We're going to talk about it today. It is Freedom Friday, and you are still not free. Welcome, friends and family. It's another episode of Freedom Friday, and you are still not free, but hopefully you will be free, freer after this hour with, I would normally say, Sharif el Meki. He is not able to make it with us today, but we have always, as always, the teacher, the educator of the show, Ish, is joining us from Philly again. It's good to see you, brother Ish. How are you doing? Always good to see you, brother. Doing well. Happy you are Friday. perfectly suited, as I say all the time, perfectly suited for the subject matter that we have here. We need real educators on the show helping us understand the issues that we're talking about. I want to say, you know, just to set the show up, you know, I, I got to you kind of late because there were some things that I was that were popping up in my life that made me think we need a better plan for how we teach young people about our history. And that's not new to me. I mean, we've been, I've been saying that for the last couple of years, but let me tell you where it gets personal. So I think I told you before that I have one, well, actually I have three kids in schools right now, but two of them I have asked before, what did you learn in history this year? Or what have you, you know, what are you guys covering? I just want to, you know, like get involved in it a little bit. And what they all three have said to me at different grade levels is all we study is wars and the state meaning we have like a strong focus on the state of Minnesota because we live in Minnesota. So strong focus on state history and then a strong focus on wars and remembering the, the dates and all that stuff of wars. So if I ask the question like, you know, well, what have you guys studied about, you know, like African-American history or slavery or civil rights or, you know, just any of the mass movements, the answer to that is, uh, yeah, and we haven't really covered that that much, right? Here's where this is really interesting. I met yesterday with the author locally here to where I am. I live in an exurb of Minnesota, right? So we're not in the Twin Cities. We're not in Minneapolis. We're not in St. Paul. We're a ways out. So we have a unique history. There's a way of thinking about the North and thinking about Minnesota, where we do tell most of the stories that feel like they're they're good stories, like we're the good guys. We were the North, not just the North. We're as North as you can possibly get and, you know, a state made of immigrants. But there's a brother here locally who, who has done a lot of research on the city that I live in, which was a town. And three groups of people settled this town to make the town work. The first group were immigrants from all over, from Scandinavia and Germany and other places. And they didn't have much money. So they were all crowded in one area. The other group who became the city leaders were actually vacationing Southerners with their slaves. So they would come up to Minnesota to vacation and they bought land here where I live. They bought land and property and they were the first leaders of the city because all of the businesses in the city were set up to um, to take care of them. So, you know, they would they buy land, they buy these big houses and then they would bring their slaves with them. They're enslaved people with them here. And then all the immigrants would sell them things, you know, sell them services and goods and whatever. And that's how the first money was made here. The third group that that settled our city that we live in were abolitionists from the Northeast. So there was a, a third group here of educated uh, New Yorkers and others who moved here. And that's the three groups that settled our towns. 
poor immigrants, rich Southern enslavers and, and abolitionists. And the funny thing that he told me was that all those new arrivals, those immigrants who came and settled the town here, they adopted the politics of the Southern plantation owners because that's who they were serving. They were working with them. So even after those folks left, after, you know, Dred Scott, some people don't know this, Dred Scott is a Minnesota case, right? So after Dred Scott, the landowner, the, the Southerners were like, well, we, you know, it may not exactly always be safe for us to bring our people up there. So they stopped coming. But even after they left, the local immigrant population adopted their politics. And there was a point in time in the city where I lived in where the percentage of black people went from double digits to zero and actual zero. And then there was a period of time where they had one or two black families in the entire city that I'm in. Slavery had a big part of the northern town that I live in, in terms of the money and the capital and setting it up. Uh, I could go on and on and on, except for this is what I'll say. In all this research that this brother did, and he wrote a book about it. And it's in part of our our museum here in our city. None of this is taught in our local schools. Mm -hmm. So I'm a grown ass man. Learned this story from him, these stories. And there's a lot more of them, like really interesting stories. We're, We're at the top of the Mississippi River. So they used to put their enslaved people and their their children on boats to come up here and vacation. This was like a destination spot for them. And we don't know this. Kids don't know this. They go to, I got two in high school and one in middle school. They've never heard any of these stories. They don't don't even know that black people were part of the story uh, in the town that we live in. So anyways, that's kind of my setup to say, how ignorant are we about many of the most important stories, you know, place-based stories. And, and anyways, the story that I wanted to, you know, talk to you about today is the one around the, the, the pushback of enslaved people was constant and consistent. Mm-hmm. Talk about enslaved people like they were docile. They were like, you know, the house, the ones in the house were just docile. The ones in the field just did what they were told. And, and okay, so we know that story is not true. So I'm going to stop here and say, how should we frame this story around slave resistance, enslaved people resisting and fighting back and notable slave rebellions in history? Well, first, I, I just definitely thank you for sharing that story. Even in Philadelphia, that has a rich uh, history of local African-American history. There's stories that we're just uncovering right now that are fascinating, that changed up the whole game. Uh, you know, everybody knows about Henry Box Brown, but do you know about Lear Green uh, or the 18-year-old pregnant girl who mailed herself to Philadelphia? Like, what? Just, yeah. Tell me that story real quick. I want to know this story. (laughs) Yeah. So no, just we usually hear the story of Henry Box Brown mailing himself to freedom, Mm -hmm. uh, the Philadelphia. Well, there was actually two other women. And one of them was an 18 year old pregnant girl who mailed herself uh, to Philadelphia to get free. And that story was just uncovered from these two brilliant women from an organization they started called the 1838 Black Metropolis They have a brilliant website, which uncovered that in 1838, Philadelphia was the center of like resistance where slaves would like come or enslaved folks would run to and get assistance and seeking freedom. And everybody was involved. And it's just brilliant. Like they got the map of all the parts of the Underground Railroad. And you actually see like this part to this part to this part. And it all centered in Philadelphia and especially around what the the boys studied later on, the Seventh Ward, a strong, wealthy, well-educated black, you know, upper middle class place in Philadelphia led the ground groundwork to really 
help a lot of people reach freedom. And we all know about William Still, but the only reason we know about William Still is that he kept copious notes of the illegal activity that he was doing. So it's just fascinating when we hear these stories from not only the local context, but like just the implications that it has for the larger story that we tell ourselves about how enslaved people kind of sought out their own freedom despite you know, seemingly impossible odds. And I think that 18-year-old pregnant girl who mailed herself is a perfect example of that. Sure. Just everybody to visit the website. They're called 1838 Black Metropolis. Uh, these two ladies are just brilliant. Uh, yeah. And they rip out the census. They got interactive maps that overlay with the city. Um, but they took this on their own. This didn't exist three years ago. Four years ago, you know, and so this knowledge is just being undercut, uh, uncovered now. And I think that's the story that we need to understand. Right. Not that folks like we have to seek it out like it, it, it didn't exist. It existed. We have to uncover it. We have to relearn it. Right. We have to create the stories that allow us to have a deeper understanding of ourselves and how our ancestors kind of negotiated the space because rebellion isn't just cutting off master's head. Right. Rebellion is also burning down the shed before harvest or working too slow or acting stupid, you know, in order to get over our master. Uh, another thing is running away was a perfect example. But people always think people ran north. Majority of people ran south. Where are those stories? Where are those stories of those enslaved Africans that went to Mexico or the enslaved Africans that got to Florida before when the Florida was owned by the Spanish, which offered freedom to enslaved folks owned by the British slave masters? Mm -hmm. So like. For me, it's always fascinating when I hear these stories, but it also goes into a larger thing. Like your story uh, in, in your, your city, that's a common story mm -hmm. of immigrants adopting kind of like this racist, white supremacist ideology and even becoming part of that power structure, right? Being absorbed into the nation state as it is and then becoming white. Right. And that's an ongoing story that we even see now with even large segments of Latino population calling themselves white. Right. So, mm -hmm. like, we need to understand that, number one, white white supremacy is super resilient, that they'll erase stories if it doesn't fit into the narrative of a carefully constructed mythology of America going towards this march towards progress. And it's like, yeah, you know, slavery is horrible, but that's so far ago. And, you know, Jim mm -hmm. Crow. Yeah, that's horrible. But that's so. but leaving out the stories of the individuals that actually broke the back of some of those like seemingly impossible institutions to disrupt. Um, yeah. And folks did this on a daily basis. A couple of connections, you know, you're making me think of like several different things at once. So a couple of connections, because today we're talking about rebellion. The United States was started in rebellion. The, the formation of the United States wasn't in itself a rebellion against oppressive yeah. foreign government. And the, the folks who were the the, the rebellion leaders became framers of a constitution of a country that didn't exist. And, and that was really a protest document, if we think about it. The Constitution of the United States, in some ways, was a protest document. Now, this is like reading somebody else's emails. This doesn't really necessarily affect us in the way that I'm saying right now, because this was a protest against one group of people versus another foreign power, of which we weren't in the middle of that yet, right? That was a, So that was a rebellion to create the United States, or what became the United States. It was a rebellion to create a constitution. And that constitution from day one actually actually enshrined white supremacy when it said 
you know, that some people are three fifths a person and only for the purposes of counting amongst their masters. Right. Like so. So that actually is when we talk about white supremacy, it's not a it's not a political abstract. It's actually a it's in law. It starts in law there. It starts with being with categorizing one group of people by their race and assigning that race as being less than human. Three first three fifths of a person, not a person who can own anything, who can vote, who can do the things that free people in this new free country that was created could do. And the interesting thing about the framers, the people who framed this rebellion document against Britain is that the one thing that they feared most was the rebellion of their new subjects, meaning that their new their new serfs, their indentured servants, their white people, their immigrants. There were no really necessarily white people yet. There were there were people that were European from different backgrounds, and and they weren't fully enfranchised yet in this thing called whiteness. And and I would bring this up to say that even though they started in rebellion themselves against France, the one thing they feared from day one was the serfs uniting and rebelling against them. And there were a couple of instances in in early American times where those rebellions started to happen, where, you know, Black and Irish and others, uh, because they were in the same social class, were conspiring together. They were working together. They were living together. They were intermarrying. If you read the book Before the Mayflower, which is one book I talk about all the time on this show, it does a good job of talking about what it was. It, It tells you something very interesting that we don't talk about a lot of times, which is there were free black people in the beginning of the United States. It was a gradual process to eventually strip from them their rights. So there were black folks at all levels of ownership before all the codes were being written to create blackness and whiteness. And like I said, not to beat the drum too much, but you know, black and white underclass people were working together. They were working in the fields together. They were working side by side in houses. They were starting to see common cause. And there were a few flare-ups where they started rebelling. And when they started rebelling, that created a psychology that never stopped. That psychology was, how do we keep them divided? How do we create structures where they don't see themselves as, as sharing class interests with each other? And how do we handle it whenever they rebel? Mm-hmm. And the way that you handle it when people rebel is you get more savage and medieval to teach them a lesson so that they never want to do it again. So rebellions punished throughout history require a higher level of criminally insane savagery against people who rebel so that they remember over time never to do it again. This could be the story of Haiti. This could be the story of Nat Turner. This could be the story of John Brown. This could be the story. We could keep telling stories where the aftermath of a rebellion was the most savage and creative punishment that you've ever, ever seen and heard. Anyways, that's my long kind of soliloquy on how rebellion is part of the fabric of the United States. It's everybody shared in one rebellion or another. I mean, the Boston Tea Party is a, is a rebellion. Um, but the way that rebellion affected Black folks makes it incredibly interesting on how they kept fighting anyways. Even knowing the stakes, they still kept fighting uh, and you just mentioned something that is so important, the different levels of rebellion. Rebellion isn't just like burning something down once. Rebellion might be slow down, work slowdowns. We invented the strike. We were the, the first strikers. Under working conditions. Absolutely. Like people <laughs> masters needed that money. Slaves right. were able, I mean, enslaved folks were able to use that for their benefit. Right. 
So talk talk about what you have learned and seen as your what you think are some of the most important rebellions. Like what are the ones that we should make sure that we always keep part of our curriculum for young people? Well, definitely the largest slave rebellion during the colonial period, the Stonehenge Rebellion. Um, and the one that that made that so big was that as they marched along, they had a goal to get to Florida to seek freedom. And a lot of folks were newly fresh from that from the islands or they came from straight from Africa. So it's really interesting how despite language differences, even cultural differences, folks were able to unite um, and actually gain strength as they went down further south from the stone along the Sono River. And actually, the only reason that they were stopped, they actually came across the governor traveling, but they didn't see him. And they were able, and they, uh, the militia or whatever you would call that back then, were able to effectively like surround them and stop them before they got to Florida. But it's mm. real interesting if that circumstance didn't happen, what would have happened if they got to Florida and they kept on growing and growing to the point that they weren't able to stop them? That's a similar situation that happened in Louisiana. Later on, another rebellion, very important, but has implications because it's connected to the Haitian Revolution because he was brought from Haiti for a slave master escaping the violence and everything that was happening there. And then his enslaved person here organized other folks to have a rebellion here in the Louisiana territory. So like when we're talking about these type of rebellions, not only in the colonial period, but also as America became America, there is a consistent pattern of folks being able to unite folks of different type of like orientations and different types of ideas and different cultural implications. And then really having a vision be like, we can get somewhere if we unite together and then like get to that place, then they can't mess with us. And they have many examples. Maroon communities existed in these places. Maroon communities existed in Florida. Communities existed in Louisiana, right? Maroon communities existed when we're talking about Latin America, which is a larger kind of like enslaved kind of resistance piece that we kind of leave out of our storyline in the North American context, the British context, right? But all these stories and all these things were passed on. Like people think that people lived in vacuums back then. Message, stories, news, travel. People heard about this. This encouraged people. And so I think when we're talking about those type of rebellions, you also need to understand that those laid the groundwork to inspire other people. So I want to point out the biggest and most successful slave rebellion that we are aware of. And that is what happened in Haiti. And then the Haitian Revolution inspired other people and also inspired white fear in America. And all those examples that you just brought up about kind of like savagery put onto the enslaved Africans in the American context just due to fear of potential rebellions was a real thing. And as time went on, those punishments, the, the codification of law became much, much, much harsh. But the one thing you need to recognize is that a lot of those laws and orientations on how to control your enslaved population in the British context were already in place leading into the Revolutionary War. Right. Mm, so, mm -hmm. so when we talk about white and black indentured servants being with each other, I always think about the story of John Punch and mm. John Punch was an enslaved, not an enslaved person. He was an indentured servant and he was an indentured servant with uh, other like white and, 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 and European indentured servants. And he ran away with two other uh, white indentured servants when they were caught. The two white indentured servants got three more years of their servitude. John Punch got life enslavement. Right. And this is the first in the court records in the colonial period where you see the shift and treatment of people differently based on race. 
Mm-hmm. You also start to see laws passed, in, and this is specifically in the Virginia colony, which said that, you know, if you are a black servant after this point, you're no longer a servant. You're now enslaved. You, they actually pass laws. If you're, if you're, if the, you know, the woman, if you're the mother and you're enslaved, your child is enslaved. That started in the British colony of Virginia through law. And at the same time, they also passed laws that gave indentured servants more rights. They also gave indentured servants more benefits after their indentured servitude was gone over land, access to money, access to guns. Right. And so like the first gun laws in this country was saying that black people couldn't have it. And white people in South Carolina had to bring their guns to church because they feared slave rebellions on Sunday, especially after the Stono Rebellion. So I know I'm kind of like all over the place with what to point out because there's so much to talk about when we're talking about slave resistance, slave rebellions, and all these things that happen specifically in what becomes the United States of America, right? Mm -hmm. But the one thing, and I'm I'm so glad you brought this up about the Constitution and all this, when America was in the colonial period, white land-owning, slave-owning men were the minority, right? There were more natives here, indigenous folks. There were more enslaved Africans. There were more Mm -hmm. women who were also not part of the equation, right? Not saying that they were by default with the indigenous folks and with the Africans, but it was in a position where they had a small minority that wanted to make sure that they could control what Alexander Hamilton called the great beast. And that is the masses. And so Mm -hmm. when they formed the constitution, right, that was right in the top of their mind. How do we make sure that our interests are maintained, i.e. the electoral college, right? Another piece was the first law that they passed after the Constitution was the Naturalization Act of 1790 that said only white men can come or white people can come to America and become citizens. That was like one of the first laws of this country once it was already established, and that was passed in 1790, uh, the Naturalization Act. Mm -hmm. So even at that jump, enslaved Africans, but also Black people who were free, like you were just bringing up, who were here, were aware of kind of the slipping situation, the possibilities also at the same time, right? Because as Southern states, after the revolution started, really double down and make sure that the institution became much more protected, in the North, you start to see folks kind of fall victim to the arguments of their own argument, right? Fall victim to their own uh, mythology, Uh, Mama Bet in Massachusetts is a perfect example where she effectively organized and sued for her freedom, which actually led to it being added to the Massachusetts Constitution as it became a state. So I'm saying all this when we talk out, it's kind of like you could point out the dates, right, and wars and memorize every single piece. But it fits into a larger tapestry of stories and, and, and stories of resilience of enslaved folks really defining what freedom was quite frankly, in a country that was built from unfreedom, right? We need to understand that America was not founded on freedom. When the colonists, when George Washington and them were demanding their freedom, they were talking about their freedom to to uh, steal land from indigenous folks and to enslave Africans. They wanted the right to do that without the king being able to dictate to them, right? That's the real story. And so when we're looking at it from that angle, you start to see, oh, so the 20,000 enslaved Africans that went to the British side in the Revolutionary War, that's a form of resistance. What are those stories? Mm-hmm. What about those individuals who ran off their plantation, joined the British, got their freedom, and then even had lives after the war, right, in British Columbia, or if you're talking about in Sierra Leone? So like all these stories, I think, are just so insightful into how humans can really like 
break the whole situation over time, yet at the same time, this single story falls flat, right? The single story of like, well, Nat Turner, that's it. You know, he killed all those mm-hmm. people and that's it. That's wonderful, right? But the deeper story was that Nat Turner was a product of a long lineage of thought beforehand that was being developed about the Bible, about the role of enslaved Africans in America, right? And and that prophecy in which he claimed that he heard is directly tied to all that. So with all that being said, I wish I could like list off the specific rebellions, which I can give a list for, but I think the deeper thing that we need to understand are the stories that are involved and the stories behind each of those rebellions. It's fascinating. This is so rich and you hit on so much. And I do want to transition to something you told me before we started. So because Karen M is talking here about resources and she says the counter-revolution of 1836 by Gerald Horn, which is something you had mentioned to me before we started the show. Before we do that, I just want to quickly kind of reflect back what I heard in a lot of what you were just saying right now, because there's some key points that I think matter to us. Uh, consistently. So first of all, and we both have said this, is that there has been an ongoing fear of rebellion, that the masses, what you just said that Alexander Hamilton called the beast, this idea that we need to create things like the electoral college and others to make sure that people don't get too free in there. Because if people ever united, if the, you know, Shay's rebellion is a good example of why you should be afraid, right? Because if those people ever show up to debtors courts with torches and guns and pitchforks, uh, that will be a problem. So there has been a consistent, never stopping, unceasing fear of rebellion of the masses, which has created a need for my second point, uh, laws and rules that divide and punish. Just those two things, divide and punish. So laws, rules, divide, punish. This is a key element of the story that we're talking about today. So so an example of that, you mentioned several laws that were put into place and several rules that were put into place to divide the races and make sure that we keep them. They never collect and come together, which leads me to a well and and a part of the punishment, I should say. Part of that is rules and and laws as as a means of creating punishments. But violence is also in the picture, too. So if you ever, you know, if rules and laws aren't doing enough, say, for instance, in the time period of like the, the lynching South, lynchings become the way of which that if laws and rules still aren't doing enough to keep you in your place, will 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 violence will be the next the next step. The the rules and the laws about dividing create what I what I always refer back to called the racial bribe. Uh, and Michelle Alexander talks about this in her book, The New Jim Crow. The racial bribe is when you start doing what you said. You start giving the white serfs benefits and privileges so that they see themselves as different from the other serfs. And, and if they take that bribe, there will be benefits for them. If they don't take that bribe, there's the fear that they will become uh, at the level of the Negro. Right. So so it's a reason to take the bribe. That's important because, as what you said, one of the rules was bringing way more white immigrants to the United States because they had to be white to come to the United States by law and by rules. Once they got here, there was a need to condition them to take the racial bribe. You will be fully white American if you hate the blacks. <laughs> right. Um, and everything realize all these points that I'm making right now that I'm summarizing from a lot of what you said were unceasing. So this isn't like a black and white photo from the past. These laws and these rules that and these social customs uh, never stopped. They they continue today. Yeah. So a lot of all, a lot of the arguments that we hear today are actually an echo 
of the fight that was started years and years and years ago and was so ingrained in the law, the rules, the customs, the norms of the United States that now they are the laws, the rules, and the customs of the United States. Um, and the last thing I'll say as part of as part of all of this is there has always been a need of that ruling class then to control the narrative, to, to define terms, define uh, the, the nature of the debate that we're having. And, th- and that carries on today. And, and the way that that has played out, there's always been a story and a counter story. There has always been the ruling class who's trying to divide and regulate. And there's been the people underneath them who are trying to not be regulated and, and, and oppressed. And the interplay between those two groups gives you two sets of things to, to pay attention to and study. One is that behavior of the ruling class that's afraid of us rebelling. The other is the inventive and creative ways that we kept rebelling over time is still part of the story today. Uh, if there is no hashtag, we invent a hashtag. If you're not listening to us, we, you will listen to us by whatever means necessary. One way or another, you will listen to us. Maybe it's burning down Detroit at some point. Maybe it's like, you know, there are stories of people getting information long distances away from one group of oppressed Black people to another. That was communication systems. They figured out how to get news to each other, how to use drums to beat out a message. Like, listen, if it, my grandmother used to say to me, like, listen, if you ever get in a bad fight, whatever is near you to grab, even if it's a blade of grass, you better grab that and figure out how to beat somebody with it. Right. This is one of those those wisdom things that people say to you that you go back and say, what the hell? I can't even believe my family. You know, she used to say stuff like, like, if you're going to get in a fight, even if you're going to get your ass kicked, make sure the other person knows they were in a fight. Right. That actually is kind of like the theology of of resistance in the United States of our people. They have constantly found out a way to use whatever's around them uh, to resist. So anyways, that's my summarizing of a lot of what you just said. Uh, Now, talk to me about Dr. Horn and the importance of Dr. Horn's work. Well, first thing first, the book's called uh, Counter-Revolution 1776. Uh, Dr. Horn is brilliant. If you do not know him, he's also written extensively about slave rebellions in the Caribbean, also in Haiti. Brilliant scholar. But when I ran across this book, Counter-Revolutionary, Counter-Revolution 1776, it blew my mind. Uh, Number one, he has like 50 pages of notes in the back where you can just reference and like go down the rabbit hole yourself. But even deeper than that, he says, whoa, this argument that somehow like slave resistance was in the background when reality is that slave resistance was actually one of the main catalysts that pushed the colonists to seek out to break away from England, right? Mm. The, The thing that folks don't sometimes leave out is that the Somerset cases were right around that time period when the rebellion happened, right? When the, when the Americans sought independence or the colonial subjects sought independence from the crown. But also deeper than that, there was also other violent instances even before like the Boston Tea Party that had slavery at the very root of it. Um, and I think specifically of the Gatsby affair in Rhode Island. In the book, I've never even heard of this. And I'm a, I love history. I, I know very much, I know a lot about the American Revolution. But the Gatsby affair turned out to be so British ships used to like regulate piracy and illegal boats and everything like, you know, the colonists would do so they didn't have to pay taxes. And so one time the colonists in Rhode Island stopped one of the ships, the Gatsby ship of the British and like straight up like killed all the people on board and burned it down, you know, and the only witness was an enslaved black boy Mm. and the British 
oh, we're going to allow him to testify against the white people that did it. That inflamed the colonial thing and pushed folks more towards calls for breaking away from the crown. You understand? Mm-hmm. So like the British were getting kind of stretched with the rebellions happening, the tacky rebellion happening in Jamaica at the same time period, also teaming up with the indigenous populations to hold off the French, right? You need to understand that there were many things happening at the same time. And as always, enslaved populations used that opportunity to divide whites even further, not only on purpose, but by just being present. You understand? Mm -hmm. So in the book, Gerald Horace says, no, slave resistance and the implications and everything around it was actually one of the main driving forces that pushed colonists to seek independence from Great Britain, not with this mythology of seeking freedom or the repressive taxes of the king. It was like all that is tied to it, but it's the main show was that there was a fear of slavery kind of changing definitions from many powerful people in the colonial context. And therefore they sought independence from Great Britain, especially as Great Britain was dealing with many other circumstances in their empire at the same time, especially after the Seven Years' War, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, this is like, I'm trying to give you like a a year-long type of like context (laughs) in a couple seconds, but you need, in the book, he just makes the case so strong that there is no way that the colonists would have rebelled if Britain didn't kind of move towards a gray area in defining what slavery meant into the empire. So, you know, Lyle, what you just said is, first of all, it's it's uh, contextual knowledge. I love it. And it can be partially because I love stories and I love history that give us more detail of some of the things we gloss over. I think that was one of the things in the 1619 project that was up for debate that a lot of people had anger about with Nicole Hannah-Jones, talking about the revolution as being driven in any part by the concern for preserving slavery. And there's a lot of historians that came to the table that just outright reject that as a as an even a possible, I mean, mainstream notable historians just reject that as even a possibility. What would you say to them? They're just like, hey, listen, that doesn't, that's not exactly the way, all the freedom stuff was the reason why there was a rebellion and the need to create the United States. Well, I think contention, you know, historical contention is real. And just the outright denial, like, I'm not even going to consider that. That Nope, that, that's not, you know, the founding fathers were good people. Yeah. You know, they recognized slavery. This is the argument they make, right? They recognized slavery was wrong and they were moving towards it. To, they were just tied too much economically and were reliant too heavily on it. Um, and therefore, you know, George Washington freed his slaves after he died. You know, these are the arguments that they make when in reality, it was the enslaved folks really like pushing the envelope and also free folks pushing the envelope for freedom for all people, right? Not just enslaved people. So mm-hmm. when we talk about that type of idea, it changes the whole storyline. Um, so I would say that, you know, when we're talking about this historical contention, leaving it out shows the really ideological orientation of the person saying leaving it out. Because yeah, there yeah. is evidence. There is stuff that you can point to like, oh, wait a minute. This is kind of influencing these decisions. This primary document where this letter to, you know, from Jefferson to somebody else shows that, you know, there was a real concern about the British cracking down on the institution of slavery in the colonial situation. 
So I, I think that when you look at it like that, it, it becomes less of an argument of this is the fact, this is the truth, this is the hard thing. No, it's a historical contention. We should engage into that conversation and really try to figure out really, you know, where we fall on it. Because quite frankly, when I first read 1619, I was like, why did she include that argument? Mm-hmm. And then I ran across this book. Yeah, and her argument really- in that actually was, I think, one of the biggest sore spots. Like her her contention that the United States, that the revolution actually was driven by concern for preserving slavery was very much, I think, the point of contention that started a lot of the backlash. I'll also say, you know, going back to what I said earlier about the controlling of the narrative, whoever controls the narrative in the story, the official story of a thing stays in power, right? Yep. That's like a part of being in power. So so rebel stories are are countervailing stories, stories that are counter stories to the main and the official one are dangerous, which means that you should, you know, you should put all your kind of force and energy into fighting back against those stories, you know, and, and it's like, if anybody who's a Christian listening to this show and studies the Bible, you have to like, realize how, how theologians fight and argue about different parts of the Bible and precepts. Like, you know, the, and this is, I don't mean this to be too much of an aside, but univocality is something that's under condition, con, uh, contention within theology. Like, does the Bible speak with one voice? And is that one voice unified in a way? Theologians are divided on that and they have very good arguments for why they're divided. In the United States, these questions of like, was it started in, 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 in racism and white supremacy, for instance, is one of those kind of need to war over the story. We need to have a war over the story and somebody's going to win that war possibly the people who are in power are going to win that war. But it requires you to do some some of the same things that theologians or, or people do when they need to make a certain point, they start grasping for an explanation for a thing in the Bible, right? That helps them make their point. And in the United States, that the, the you know, the thing around, I'll give you one example. Uh, you know, they they were against the, the the framers of the constitution were against slavery, but you know, they they knew that they had to think forward. And they knew that eventually that the the constitution they were putting into place would help people find their freedom and help them get out of slavery. They just they they you know that's a metaphysical answer. I just want to, for people listening to that whenever you hear that that is a metaphysical argument. Just so you know, they they somehow were so prescient uh, and forward thinking that they could see a hundred years into the future. Even as Thomas Jefferson is writing things like the races will never be equal. Um, they're not equal by nature, by law. Um, we need to build them another country and send them somewhere else. They will never be free here in the United States, and they will never be at the level unequal to white folks. Right. So even as people like Thomas Jefferson and others are just lamenting the the inequality by nature of black and white people and how they will never be equal. And even as people like Lincoln, even in some of his earlier, you know, thinking and, and records is, you know, he's considered a great emancipator, but he's not considered somebody who actually thought that blacks and, and white people were will ever be equal. So the idea that they were so prescient, so prophetic uh, is a metaphysical argument. They did not intend for us to ever be free. They were not writing the Constitution or any of the amendments to the Constitution with the idea that we would ever be equal. That's just it's it's just not a rational argument. It's illogical. In fact, they were they were creating law that made us unequal by law. So when you hear historians and other people today want to argue that yeah, it was kind of bad, but listen. 
put somebody in slavery today and have them live that out and tell them that 100 or 200 years from now, their people will eventually be free and see if that's a good compromise. And if it is, I mean, if you happen to be one of those white folks that says dumb shit like that, this is what I want from you. I want you to say, okay, well, then let us put you in that that condition for the next 100 years. We're going to put you in this condition. And listen, it won't be that bad. I mean, it's, you know, some of us will even treat you nice. Some of us will even, you know, give you good clothes and good food and we'll just take care of you. So let's just say all of white Appalachia, let's just put them into slavery for the next 400 years. And, you know, let's write a constitution, a new constitution for them. Uh, And in this new constitution, what we'll do is we'll just make sure that we're like thinking that like 100 or 150 years from now, you'll be free. So it won't be that bad. It won't be that bad. Like, you know, so I mean, listen, this is what they tell us. This is what they tell us, you know, why, you know, everybody is, it was sex trafficking back then. Everybody was doing it. So, you know, it's eh, not that bad. You're better off. You're better off from, for having come here than you would have been in that, you know, that dark, savage, you know, Africa. So you're better off here. Cool. Let's try that. Let's start it today. Let's just do, I want everybody to sign up for this. Right. Uh, and during that time, this, this next hundred years. So this will put us to what? 2123. So in 2123, from now until then, we'll just be amassing all kinds of wealth. And in 2023, we'll free you guys. 2123, we'll free you at that point. You'll be able to start your life. And at that point, we'll just start asking questions of like, well, we'll have, why haven't you like risen up faster? Like, you know, it's, it's uh, 2124 now. And, you know, it's a year past the 100 years since you've been out of this. I can't believe that you guys aren't making more of yourself or whatnot. Sounds silly, but I'm, I'm all for it. Let's, you know, I like to test things. I'm a scientific person. You have to create science, science projects, right? How many people do you think are going to sign up for that, Ismail? Not a single person. I mean, even no? in our modern context, and even in our modern context, I, I bet you most white people want to sign up to be black in our modern context. But I digress about that. They, well, they like, just on that point, I was they like to too. sign up temporarily, but right. Well, they like to sign up in the culture. You know, they like to put on the clothes. They like to cosplay as Negroes. But maybe 20 or 30 years ago, there was a study that that I wrote about in something, an essay that I was writing. The study said, how much money would it take for you to switch from being white to black? They asked white people this question, how much money? And back then, bare minimum, they said, I would have to be a millionaire, right? Like to, to make me black now in these times. At the same time that they were saying that black people weren't treated any different as anybody else, they were saying that they would need to be a millionaire to 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 agree with switching over if they had to. What does that tell you? Well, I, I think it tells us what white America's delusion is all about. I, I think all the things that we're talking about at the foundation of the country, and I think you just did a good job because that actually went down like that, right? Once Lincoln, when he ran for office, he didn't want to free on slave people, you know, he actually supported the original 13th Amendment. And I bet you on here, many people don't know, ever even heard that there was a proposal for a 13th Amendment that was almost passed if the Civil War didn't happen, called the Crowan Amendment, which would have made slavery permanent where it existed. And Mm -hmm. Lincoln supported that amendment while running for president. While being president, even leading up to the Emancipation Proclamation, he supported colonization. He even offered a deal on the eve of the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation to the Confederates saying, if you rejoin the Union now, I will allow you to maintain the institution of slavery for another 40 years. So we're talking about Mm -hmm. 1905 or something when it was ended, Mm -hmm. right? 
And the only reason what pushed him, number one, if you read what Frederick Douglass was talking about Lincoln at that time, if you read what William Lloyd Garrison, they were calling this man a hick and a backwards and all this type of stuff. But at the same time, once that ended, we only had like a 10-year period where America actually went out of its way to try to make right what was happening before in a half-ass way, right? Known as Reconstruction. And even during that time period, people were like, that's reverse racism. Look at these savages. They're like, they, there was propaganda cartoons of like black people in Congress, like drinking liquor and eating fried <laughs> chicken, man. And so like, sounds familiar, don't it? And so like, that was an established. So once that was gone, the country went back on its way. And then we see almost a hundred years of Jim Crow, right? At the same time of the development of that, you start to see scientific racism. And I, I, I don't want to verge off too much right now, but I'm reading a book called White White World Politics, Black Power or White World Order, Black Power Politics. And in the book, the author shows like, well, at the development of scientific racism at the turn of the 19th, you know, 19th century into the 20th century, there was this huge thing about eugenics and and all these other ideas, which eventually went to inspire Hitler and eventually inspired South Africa apartheid system, right? And in that, they started to say, well, these nations, these these different places that are in contention with one another, it has to do with the race development. So Foreign Affairs Magazine, and this is going to, this shocked me when I read it, Foreign Affairs Magazine was actually first started and called the Journal of Race Development. Mm. And it was, a, yep, you can look this up, Journal of Race Development. Du Bois even wrote in it. And the Journal of Race Development basically is trying to make the case that, well, you know, based on the tropics and the heat in the area and the development of like the brain and everything, like folks weren't able to actually develop a fully functional society. Therefore, we have the justification of kind of setting up a colonial order, right? Mm -hmm. And you see this argument being made for Puerto Rico. You see this argument about not allowing Mexico to become part of the United States with senators in Congress saying those mongrels are going to just, you know, bring down the race and, and our civilization. So civilization at that point shifted from like kind of building it up and, and exploiting it to a rationalization of saying like, this is scientifically supposed to be like this. We're meant to be at the top. And we have all these scientists to co-sign and prove what we're trying to say. And then that influenced America as it became an empire. Which mm. change, you know changes up the whole conversation. Man, that is so deep. Yeah. And you know, I think when I think about like rebellion, you know, you think we're talking a lot about domestic in the United States, but you know, it's a global project. So some countries came out on top, and some countries came out in the middle, and some countries came out on the abject bottom. And when you think about like the color coding of that that hierarchy that I just said, right? Like we have, we're walking around the most kind of crude story that I can think of is we're walking around with iPhones where the cobalt in them was mined from a country where 11 year olds are working 12 hour days to dig that out of the ground for nothing. Meaning they are the most mineral rich, one of the most necessary and middle rich countries in the world that couldn't be poor, can't even feed their food to the point where they're enslaved right now. They're, they're young people enslaved for our iPhones. And you have to ask yourself, well, how did the world get ordered like that? How did it get set up to where someone in the Netherlands is like listed as the happiest country in the world where they have all this order and all these goods and free health care and all kinds of, you know, lovely benefits to their life. And then you have a place that couldn't be richer. In, in minerals, but couldn't be poor in everything else, like, you know, parts of Africa where they are actually serving up 
either oil or or minerals or you know like gold and stuff like that or cobalt meaning that that entire continent is actually the richest continent in the world that's poor uh, and if it weren't for the structure of the world how the world was structured that would be the center of of the world that would be the global center of everything if they weren't enslaved today still to today so you know even in the sense that they all rebelled in the 60s and the 50s rebellion was a part of their freedom those countries actually threw off the yoke of direct colonization they never threw off colonization right so you have countries in africa right now that france is forcing to repay them for the years that they oppressed them and colonialized them and the way that they enslave them today is they make them stay on the french franc or franc or whatever it is their their money that nobody else uses right yeah. nobody else uses and and they can't break free they can't convert to the dollar they can't grow crops just for themselves they can't reap the benefits if it weren't for these colonies still in place today there would be no france france would not exist france is actually a hick uh, european country without the current level of colonization that they're doing in africa they would collapse their economy would collapse they don't even have their money in francs they actually make these african countries have their money in francs even though they themselves don't right that's like a waitress who won't eat the food that she's serving right like you know it's 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 nuts but it's still today we act like these things are in the past these so whenever i see this is how i'm going to wrap and come back to this whenever i see a situation like that today that still persists and first of all americans you're so ignorant about all these things that i'm saying that are coming out of my mouth right now you couldn't be more ignorant because you are vulnerable to a narrative that has been carefully curated over many years to keep you luxuriously ignorant right you are you couldn't be more of a pampered intellectual baby you are so ignorant and so well taken care of and maintained that you have no interest in becoming a learned person that's just one guy talking i'm not going to put that on ish to say that about anybody else that's just you know one person talking but the one thing that is missing from all these places, like the cobalt diggers, that is missing is the rebellion. And once the rebellion starts organizing and coming, there will be a response to the rebellion there. And there will be a need to either do one thing, let them liberate or, or not be forced to let them liberate like countries have done before in Africa or to create very harsh measures. The existence of Haiti the way it is right now, we think it's because of the people. Look how they destroyed their country. Used to be such a great place when it was colonized. No, if you look at the difference between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, you will see the difference in punishments for, for rebellion. And right? the Dominican Republic ain't doing that well neither, but I digress. This is, but they're doing better than Haiti, but you're right. Yep. <laughs> you're right. It's not like they're doing great, but there's a difference between accepting your colonization and, and rebelling against it. And oh. the difference couldn't be more clear than Haiti and the Dominican. Right. Exactly. So like, think about it. It's like that bad child. You just want to give the butt whooping to it all the time. Like, get in line, get in line. Right. And the other child's like, but I'm following orders, mommy. And it's like, OK, OK, you're good. Just stay where you're at. Yeah, I'm stand in the corner. Yeah, put you on time out. <laughs> yep. And, and but like Haiti, the Haitians had to pay back the French government for the money they lost from uh, losing from enslavement being over. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. The French government mm -hmm. made the Haitians mm -hmm. pay them back to and borrow from French banks to pay that back where they're still yeah. paying the interest on that loan. I was about to on say loans. like a couple billion dollars or something. It was like a, lot, a big number. Don't let me lie. But it was like a large number that today keeps you in perpetual colonization. Exactly. So like, yes. don't yeah. get it twisted. These folks know what they're doing. 
right? So what we're seeing in Central Republic of Africa and other places, Franco-speaking African countries, what you just brought up, you see the same thing. And I am so glad that you brought up what's happening in the Congo and how like all our touchscreens and everything are only possible from those minerals from the ground. And really right now, that's like a war zone with different financial interests, governmental interests. There's so many people that got their hand up in that situation. But I want to bring up two years ago, the Supreme Court ruled and threw out a case uh, alleging slave child slave labor on cocoa plantations by Nestle and Cargo, U.S.-based companies. And they ruled we can't we can't do anything about that. We can't control conduct that happens overseas. So basically, the Supreme Court acknowledged on the slick and was like, oh, yeah, you know, slave labor, child slave labor, that's fine overseas. It's fine we can't touch them. it overseas. Yeah. And so, like, when you're right, when rebellions happen, because they will, because this situation that has been produced is untenable. There is too many people in the world right now that struggle day to day just for the basics, while we have a bunch of people over here that don't even know about these situations because they're just more concerned about what's on their phone right in front of them in their daily selfish lives. And so, like, we can pretend all you want, but I know when I was in Dar es Salaam a couple of years ago during the COVID pandemic and I saw all the people living in poverty, looking on their cell phones, looking at the world, all that creates the situation where it's like, I want to get what you got. And if mm-hmm. education isn't following, that is might, unfortunately might reproduce situations in which we have, but that is a reality. And rebellion is always a scary thing. It's scary for the people who do it. It's scary for the people who are in the situation. Like it's not a beautiful thing, but it's, but it's like part of the situation that will occur. And I think that's what's so powerful about black people's story in America. Right. Because I'm not saying that we reached the promised land. Right. But more in the sense of the definitions of freedom, the examples of resist resilience and resistance continuously while you're being told that you're not that. And then the theories and the frameworks that develop as a result from leaders that were produced, from thinkers that were produced. Right. That is transferable. Those lessons are transferable to across the world, especially when you're dealing with the largest empire in the world, which is America. And when you, you know, look at this domestic colonization, right, if we want to call it that, you actually create a situation where folks are like, you know, Watts, Detroit, mm-hmm. Ferguson. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I wouldn't be surprised if another rebellion happened this summer with another shooting, right? These mm-hmm. are things that haven't been done. People went back in their corner, but that brewing that dissatisfaction is still there. And I, I would argue that that is in existence across the world and it's and it's not getting better. It's, it's getting worse. Um, and even in this country, I think, uh, you know, the people who are supposed to believe in the mythology are starting not to believe in their own story. And when empires do that, that's when empires fray. The young, the young are starting to not believe the hype. Yeah. Let me ask you. So I have I'll, I'll give my wrap on this, my final thought. But before if I could ask you to give like a one minute on we just talked about old stories and and stories of rebellion and stories of of pushback, St- starting with we started this with like the the call of young people that are the call of oppressed people that if you could get to Florida um, way back when this is way back in the day, right? You'll be free. So they started rebelling and wanting to get to to 
that place where they could be free. Can you do one minute on just how that spirit never stopped and it showed up in the civil rights movement and then showed up in the Black Lives Matter protests? It's not something that ever stopped, that sense that we we can fight back and we should fight back. Just one minute on that. Well, yeah, definitely. I, I would say that that is a continual flame, right? From the first from the first enslaved African who was brought on a ship and jumped off because he didn't want to come over here. You know, that is from the very jump a spirit, an orientation that this world is not the, the final end of what what it means to be who we are, and that our travel, our souls are much more deeper and have much more impact in the world than just simply in this moment. And I think that really carries on, right? This idea that we're connected to the ancestors, that the idea that this is a circle of life, right? We're talking about indigenous worldview. We're talking about African worldviews that really shape and give the thrust to how people orientate themselves, even if they're being bombarded with Western ideas of what God represents. One thing I always point out, and and I'm going to end with this, is are we talking about the God of George Washington or are we talking about the God of Harriet Tubman? Because supposedly Mm. they're supposed to be worshiping the same God, but one was asking for one thing and one was asking for another. Mm. And I think that speaks to the very crux of the orientation of folks here. And remember, it wasn't just for Black people, right? It was for everybody eventually. And even everybody who a lot of folks have benefited from what Black people have gained increased rights for in this country, even if Black people didn't benefit in the same way. And I think Mm. that speaks to the larger kind of some people call it the black radical tradition. Some people call it kind of like the, 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 you know, thrust from our ancestors. You know, they try to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. And this just speaks to kind of the power of even knowing about these things, but also being in the midst of really the biggest empire in the world, being able to speak power to it. Because remember, what we're talking mm-hmm. about, you can't do this in 18 states and classrooms, y'all. So... This has been so deep. And this this concept, of, you know, this thing you said about like, uh, are we talking about the God of George Washington or the God of Harriet Tubman? Man, we could do another show on this. Yeah. This is There's certain things that were said today that could be a whole nother show. And I think actually we should come back to several of these things. This is what I'll say as the wrap is I think that, you know, the uniqueness of the black story in the United States actually is undersold and undervalued in many ways. But I'm going to say one one way in which it is that's provocative and people are going to hate me for what I'm about to say. So and, and I'm OK with it because I feel like, you know, truth is meant to be hated. So here's the real truth of the United States. Black people are the only conscience of the United States that was geared towards freedom, even in the face of lack of hope. So so in times where there was, I think, Howard Thurmond, or, or I know I've heard Howard Fuller talk about this, even in times where there was no chance of victory, no, no chance of escape, and actually really no kind of a pathway towards real freedom, Black people still maintain the hope to fight, the the will to fight. And what immigrants from all over the world did, and we talked about this in the beginning of the show today, what they did when they came here, they took the racial bribe. They had no interest in an equal society. They just had an interest in bettering their position within an unequal society, meaning ascending and rising up. The Italians did it. The Polish did it. The Irish did it. The Jews did it. I could keep going down. They had no interest in an equal society. They just had an interest in their own interest, which was to rise above. 
You come to a new place, a new country. You don't want to be poor. You don't want to be part of the lower classes. You want to be part of the unwashed classes. So there's only one group in the United States that had a permanent interest in proving the precepts of liberation and freedom and then the will of the human spirit to be free. There's only one group in the United States that had to constantly keep that as their main project, harbor that as the main project. And everybody benefited in the United States, everybody has benefited from Black people being the torchbearers of real liberty, real freedom, the fight for freedom, and the opposition of oppression, right? The op constant opposition, that has been a torch that one group carried in the United States as everybody else found fancy ways to justify oppression or to benefit from it. So, so if you are a person today who is enjoying civil rights, and you're enjoying your rights as women, and you're, in, you're enjoying your rights as sexual minorities, and you're enjoying your rights even as immigrants and new immigrants and new Americans, you will turn on the torchbearers of, of real liberty and freedom at some point, um, which will just consistently prove, first of all, you're welcome. And second of all, it will consistently prove that there is only one group of real leading patriots in the United States, and that's Black people, because we make the Constitution real. We make it prove itself. We make it actually be what it, its marketing says that it is, even when it's not. And that has been our history. And that is a dangerous history to tell. It is so dangerous that you need to outlaw it from being taught in schools to your white kids. And even to our own kids, you need to control that story so that it's not told in the wrong way in Black advanced placement classes, because it's such a dangerous story to tell. And it would so unseat you and unseat your lie that is actually guiding most of America right now. Without rebellion, there will be no progress. And, and there are many ways to rebel. The show has been about rebellion by enslaved people, but that's going to fall short for some folks because they don't think that we're still enslaved. They can't see the chains. The chains are invisible now. And those who do see it are the torchbearers. So again, you're welcome to all those people who came to the United States after the real money was made and the real country was built, uh, who today say things like, well, we worked hard for hours and you just need to work harder. I love your, I love your privilege of ignorance, but it's, it's, uh, it's not going to last. There will always be rebellion and we will always be the ones carrying it. This has been another episode of Freedom Friday and you are still not free, but hopefully you are freer after this hour with Ish and me. This has been very powerful. Ish, uh, you know, you're a full-time fixture on the show whenever you want to be here. So, so whenever you come need back me, I'll, send a call. I'll, come, I'll come through. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, man. And as always, everybody listening and watching, uh, please share the show. Click on it, like it, leave comments, do anything you can to help spread it. We love how much the show spreads after Friday, because not everybody can be here on a Friday morning. But after the show, you all do a very good job of making other people see it and hear it. We got an email just last week of someone that is using Freedom Friday shows and material in their classes in, in at the college level, which was amazing. Uh, so help us keep getting the word out. We appreciate you as always. 